coming up on this episode of the Throne of Games podcast. We review Borderlands 2, Assassin's Creed 3, and we welcome the special guest, Maddie Myers. All this and more coming up on the Throne of Games podcast. Brace yourselves. Welcome, everyone, to the Throne of Games podcast. I am your host, Reed Davenport, and as I did mention, we have a couple of reviews this week, and let's start up with our review of Borderlands 2. Hey there, stranger! Borderlands 2, the follow-up to the surprise hit Borderlands, looks to improve upon the franchise by providing players with four new characters, while also bringing back the original four characters players grew to love from the first installment. The weapons are far more crazy, the enemies are just as insane, and the boss battles are far more epic than the first installment. The four new characters are similar in class types from the first four in the original game, but with their own twists regarding weapon specialties and special abilities. The introduction of alternate skins for your character's armor and head is a nice change of pace from the simple color selection of the first game. Borderlands 2 is a great but not excellent follow-up to the first game. The challenges thrown in front of you will become increasingly difficult to do on your own. Unless you spend hours leveling your character up, collecting high-powered weapons to mow down your enemies, you will run into plenty of moments you may stop playing due to increased amounts of frustration due to dying over and over and over again. This can sometimes be resolved by joining a team online, but this is the point that killed the game for this player. While playing the game with friends is a great experience, playing with strangers can be a roll of the dice. You may end up with players willing to provide great weapons, cash items, and so on. At other times, you may be grabbing everything you possibly can before others loot it as well. For the most part, the online play is what kills the game experience. Too many people are in it for the loot drops, they grab the items they need or want, and then they suddenly quit the game. 
That being said, Borderlands 2 does provide hours upon hours of quests to be completed in a single playthrough, never mind when you play as a new character. While the first Borderlands finish left a lot of players let down, the ending to Borderlands 2 is well worth the journey and reveals we are likely to see additional installments down the line of this franchise. Borderlands 2 is currently available for Xbox 360, PS3, and the PC. We give Borderlands 2 four slaps to the prince out of five. And up next, we actually have, uh, we're waiting for a call from uh, journalist Maddie Myers. I think we have a call coming in right now. Hold on one sec. We are welcomed by guest Maddie Myers, who is a games journalist for The Phoenix, which is a magazine in Boston, and she also happens to manage their website. Thank you very much for joining us for the Throne of Games podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, down to the controversy at hand, and that's in regards to the Lost in Humanity issue. Uh, but first, we might as well have you yourself introduce uh, exactly how you got into James games journalism. Sure. Um, I've been working at the Phoenix for six years, and the first year that I worked there, I was just an intern. And the reason why I applied there was because they were the only publication in Boston that offered an internship for a web intern. And in the description, they wrote, you can write about video games. And of all the other internships that I applied to while I was still in school, that was the only one that had video games in the description. So I kept pursuing it, kept pursuing it, even though they never contacted me back, neither did anybody else. And eventually I just showed up at the office and said, hey, I still really want to work here. Is there any way that I can? And they were like, oh, yeah, uh, we didn't really look at your resume because I guess back in the day nobody really did. And so me showing up at the office was the way to get the job there. So I interned there and convinced them to let me review a game and did a probably terrible job as a young college student might do and very very eventually I graduated and they offered me a job there for some reason those silly silly magazine folks who offered me a job and um, I work on their website and I also still write about games for them years later hooray Excellent. Now, have you actually worked directly with any video gaming companies, or do you just pretty much work off? I do like not at all. At all. <laughs> <laughs> I have never done that. <laughs> I do realize that's part of the controversy, so that's why I'm being so uh, emphatic about saying that I never have. I know a lot of game developers. I've interviewed video game developers before, of course, um, but I've never worked for one. And as you just mentioned, the whole controversy around the uh, Lost in Humanity on Eurogamer. Uh, now, what were your initial reactions when you uh, both heard about it and then actually read the article? Well, I read the article and I thought I thought it made some interesting points. And since then, well, it seems like video game journalists are at times needlessly introspective. I feel like a lot of the video game journalists that I know only work in video game journalism and that video game journalism is somewhat different from other forms of arts criticism. And as a person who works at a magazine, used to be a newspaper, now it's a magazine, hence my confusion of terms there. Just bear with me there. I'm getting used to it. <laughs> um, that also does other forms of art criticism. We review music, theater, etc., local Boston things. It. I get to see directly how that other arts criticism works, and also sometimes I review other things. So for me, it's not that unusual to see 
at least some, quote, corruption within those areas. Like music journalists know musicians or sometimes are musicians and theater reviewers sometimes were actors or no actors and so on. So seeing that kind of corruption get called out within the article, I I do think it's controversial and I think that it's very difficult. And since I have a lot of friends who are game developers and know them, even though I don't work for a game development studio or anything, I, I understand how it's it's hard to both be a fan and also be a friend of these people who work in the media that you're reviewing. But also you, the article called out some other situations where reviewers would want to win a free game or win a free PS3 or be in a situation where they were quote advertising a game, but they were also a fan of that game. And where's the line there? But I feel like that happens in a lot of other arts criticism too. And I don't really see people talk about that as much as they do with video games journalism. You think it just mainly has to do with the fact that the gaming community is far more uh, outspoken in regards to when they see stuff like this going on as opposed to... It could be, but I think it's also this insularity that happens because we have so many video game only related websites. And also we've kind of separated ourselves from other people i think unintentionally like video game journalism and video games in general have this sort of wall of inaccessibility about them that is like if you're not one of us if you're not a gamer then you don't really get it and it's not like movies really have that or books or theater or other forms of arts criticism like anybody can go to a movie and obviously to be a professional film critic you have to have some knowledge of film, but I wouldn't say that if somebody wanted to be a film blogger, there's not the same exacting standards. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that happened, but do you agree that that has happened? I, I think it's unusual. I Did you well, read I recently Rowan Kaiser wrote, like very recently this past week, Rowan Kaiser wrote an article in GameRanks called What Games Journalism Needs More Honesty, Fewer Standards, and he compares games journalism in light of this controversy to some other arts criticism, which Thank goodness somebody did it because I thought I was the only person who was thinking about this. But a lot of other arts criticism has this same issue. Like music writers will talk about bands that they like. And is that an advertisement for that band? Is it an endorsement? Do they know the people in the band? Maybe they do. It's It happens. It's possible. I see it happen a lot. I I don't know if I think that's corruption, though. I think that the main problem is is that um, a lot of people that aren't in the games journalism field don't understand what it's like to be a games journalist. That's absolutely um, right. <laughs> I, I wrote for free, didn't get paid anything except for getting free games to review uh, back in college at UMass Amherst. And uh, unfortunately, I got the label of being a Nintendo fanboy because I constantly reviewed Nintendo games. But right. here's the thing, is that I reviewed plenty of other games. Uh, I actually had reviewed a game that was the, like one of the first Lord of the Rings games to come out after the movie had come out by Vivendi Universal. Um, it was not a good game. It was terrible, horrible, and they were charging the usual $60 for it. And I told them, honestly, my feelings in my column uh, about how awful it was and how horrible it was to the point that I couldn't play it past the first area of the game. They were upset that I didn't try too hard and then cut me off as a contact. Uh, so I feel that what the fans out there don't see is the fact that if we don't, if games journalists don't go out there like Jeff Niley did and sat between the 
uh, Mountain Dew and Doritos right there, you don't do that sort of like a little bit of PR stunts, then those certain developers are going to cut you off and pretty much look you make you look bad because your company, your website, maybe just you as a person writing articles for a newspaper publication, you're not going to get them as a contact. Therefore, you're not going to be able to review the uh, latest Halo game coming out. So therefore, you lose viewership. Therefore, then your job gets even harder because you may have to spend your own funds to go out and do that and get the game to review it. Um, and it just becomes really hard on yourself if you are very, very um, critical upon all games that come out. So I think that's part of the other problem that happens in game journalism is unfortunately these developers become uh, bullies in the sense that, like, hey, you need to review this nicely or we will cut you off. I know, and that's obviously completely unacceptable. I That isn't something that happens in other forms of arts criticism, and it's not something that I think is games journalism's fault. It's something that is the fault of PR companies who basically can't deal with the fact that maybe if they... I, I mean, usually it seems like it's the fault of PR companies. I I do not think it's right for a games, journalism, games journalist to give a good score to a game because they are concerned that the contact will cut them off. But I also don't think it's right of the contact to have ever insinuated in whatever way that they did to the journalist that they might be cut off. Or obviously it's not okay for it to ever happen. But it's also a tricky problem to know how to solve because it's sort of an arms race in a way because it's like, well, we have to kind of keep giving at least kind of good scores to games because we want to make sure we keep getting the games, but also we have to include in here some sort of secret code in the review to indicate that it's not really that good. Even though we're giving it an eight, we're going to include a bunch of paragraphs about how it's kind of crappy in other ways. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I I don't... I think that people just have to stop doing that. And I'm in a place where I don't need to. Like, the Phoenix doesn't get a lot of free copies of games. We do occasionally get some. A lot of PR contacts that I have completely ignore my emails, and I think that's because I don't work for a quote-unquote legitimate magazine. According to Games PR, I work for a local magazine that mostly reviews local Boston events and also talks about games. So a lot of times... I just don't get free copies of games or maybe I'll get one randomly, but I will never know when it's coming. I pretty much just have to buy them myself and sometimes get reimbursed by my publication. Sometimes not. It's sort of complicated and that's just my situation. So I pretty much just have to write whatever I think of the game because I'm, I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of times I'm not getting paid back for the game. So I'm just taking a hit there and getting paid for the article, but I don't know. I, that, I don't think that's the situation at most places and people are worried about continuing to get free games. I At big places that can afford to pay their journalists for the games, though, I don't know that that makes that much sense. But I also understand that some places are really worried about getting the early copy because they really need to have the review up on time. And that's part of a whole other problem where I just kind of feel like, hey, maybe it would be okay if we waited a week. I don't know. That's like another aspect I of think games journalism that, that I think is a little silly. <laughs> that, that kind of takes out like the actual gamer aspect of reviewing a game. Like you're not waiting in line at midnight launch for Halo 4. You're not uh, trying to be first in line the next morning to maybe pick it up. You're not trading in games, trading your own money to get it. So it makes it less personable. So you don't really understand the whole concept. You're just like, yeah, this game's coming. I'll review it when I get a chance. Right. I know I have a deadline. I'll review it by then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
I might as well state it now that I am not affiliated with any gaming companies. I don't get free copies of games uh, to do this podcast, so I've got to either pay for it or trade in games that uh, I've had for a while and don't really want to play anymore. So, right. Uh, but um, it, I am fortunate enough to know some people in the gaming industry. Still, that doesn't really sway my decision of whether or not I'm going to buy a game or review it kindly or poorly. Right. Uh, I think the good thing is that we are seeing a trend where uh, certain people within the company need to know when their game's bad because they need to know what they need to do to correct it or make it their next title much better. Um, I did get to meet with some of the developers at Bioware at this past PAX East, and that was before the that was during the whole uh, Mass Effect Three controversy, and that's pretty much all that was talked about. Right. Um, and they were completely. If you look at the reaction they had, they were completely understanding and open and willing to accept the fact people weren't happy, and they gave gamers a ridiculous amount of stuff back. Yeah, uh, they did. So, I mean, there's a sign of developers going in the right way. Um, I'm not well, really sure. I think that sometimes the problem is more with PR companies than with developers. It's like, I, I Obviously, nobody likes to hear criticism, but usually in articles that are about this sort of controversy where there's a concern about score inflation or whether or not somebody's getting a free copy of a game, it's more about marketing and PR and who decides who gets what games. And I don't know enough about that to say how it works because it seems pretty shadowy and mysterious to me, but I just kind of wish that all the game journalists would get together and agree. We're all just going to say what we really think about these games. And if people cut us off, that's too damn bad. And we'll just publish an editorial saying we would have reviewed Halo or Black Ops 2 or whatever before now, but we can't because they won't send us a game. Maybe because we wrote this before. We don't know, but there you have it. And I just feel like if we all got together and did that, we might be able to make a change, but it doesn't seem to be happening. <laughs> so now you brought up scores. So what do you think of the new website Polygon that has come out and said that they will adjust scores based on uh, changes to the game, maybe updates, DLC, stuff like that. I think that's interesting. I don't. Did you also read Jason Trier's article in Kotaku about how Metacritic will only accept scores, the first score? Did you see that? Um, I guess Metacritic is a little worried about people changing scores if a developer complains, and they want to make sure that nobody does that. So they're they have instated a policy, or had already instated a policy, whereby they will not update scores that go into Metacritic. So this whole idea of changing scores, I, I don't know that it's that effective. I, I understand where Polygon's coming from on it, and I respect their decision to do it. I, I totally get it, but I also don't know if it's going to have the effect that they wish it would have, because people won't people won't necessarily understand why the score is being changed, and sometimes there's a concern that the score is being changed because of complaints from the developer. So I just worry that instead of seeming less corrupt, it might end up accidentally seeming more corrupt to be changing a score. I, I think it might be might be easier to just leave scores as they are. But well, I don't know. I, I might be be able might be able to be convinced the other way on that. But for now, at least, I think just reviewing a game as sort of a snapshot in time and perhaps saying this is what this game was like on this date. Here's our review of it. And then publishing some sort of follow-up separate article that says, here's what we think of the game now. Because at this point, games are living in the sense that updates can be pushed through to the game online. 
which obviously couldn't happen 10 years ago. So I do understand that they're living pieces of art in some ways, like new art can be added and new sounds and so on and new programming. But it, I don't know that the original review should change. I just think that might introduce too many new conflicts. Right. Okay, and recently you actually published an article in regards to trying to uh, weave your way into the, um, oh, is it the fighting, <laughs> the fighting game community? Yes. Uni. Um, <laughs> for our that, uh, listeners that haven't heard about that, do you want to just explain that article? Sure, I will. It's it's at least vaguely related to this topic in the sense that I had to go to some arcades and meet some people. And even though I knew that those people would not like what I had to say, if they were to read it afterwards, I had to write an article that represented honestly what I experienced. I went to some fight nights, which at least locally, they're called fight nights. I don't know if they're called fight nights elsewhere in the country. But here a fight night means it's a meetup at a bar or an arcade or a video game store where people play Street Fighter, play Mortal Kombat 9, play Marvel vs. Capcom 3, basically play contemporary fighting games and try to increase their skills. And eventually some of these places host tournaments also, or just participate in like Shoryuken related, whatever tournaments posted on Shoryuken, which is a fighting game forum, official stuff or non-official if it's just a fight night. And I, it, there's some disagreement about whether or not the events I attended are or are not part of the official fighting games community. Although I think that argument is a little silly. If you're playing fighting games, you're part of the fighting games community as far as I'm concerned. But I attended these events. I didn't have a good time and I wrote about it. And that was tough because people who also attended those events and even met me there wrote me after the fact and were upset that I didn't have fun, essentially. And they felt like I should have had fun, but I'm not going to lie and say that I had fun at an event when I didn't. And one could extrapolate from my article that the fighting games community isn't welcome. I would be hesitant to do that. I went to events and I didn't have a good time. I'm, I don't really want to extrapolate too much further than that. But I do think that a lot of these gaming and public types of events can be difficult for an outsider and especially can be difficult if you're the only lady there, as I was. But I I mostly just think it's difficult to write honestly about things. And it's something that I always try to do. Even if I'm writing something that's going to upset people, I really try to write it anyway. <laughs> it's either that or not at all. <laughs> do you think part of the reason that it's hard for people to join those that because we are in a gaming community now where so many people are used to interacting online and anonymity that when it comes to interacting with both male and female in person that it, it just kind of like they have zero social interaction when it comes to person to person I think this is like an old problem from even before that because when I think about growing up as a kid and playing games at the arcades I it was almost always boys and I always felt weird about playing and it wasn't until cons the console generation started and I started playing with people in their houses that I felt more comfortable doing it. Like as a kid, I would play games at the arcade, but it was just so often guys and I, and, and young girls, I think feel intimidated seeing a group of guys because I just think that's always going to happen. I mean, biologically men are, are tend to be bigger and stronger and even like a nerdy guy is still intimidating to a nerdy girl. And I think that that's, it's just kind of the way that we're socialized. 
And that's unfortunate. And I, I wish it, I wish it weren't a thing. And I think that we live in an age now where it's becoming less of a thing, I hope. But these sort of male social groups form when guys are young and at least locally in my area, these fight nights were made up of guys who had known each other for a very long time, several of them, and had been playing fighting games since they were in elementary school and playing at arcades. And now they're all getting together with their fight sticks and plugging them into TVs together, which is sort of the equivalent of a stand-up arcade used to be. And it's just like, it's still guys, it's still guys. And like, maybe there's a few girls, maybe there's five girls in comparison to 25 guys. That's like best case scenario. Maybe there's a few girls, but it's just so, it's tough. And I don't think that it's just because it's online. I think it's just that competitive gaming is socialized as male still. And women look at it and they think that's not for me and it doesn't occur to them that it might be fun. And I don't know how to break that exactly. I, I always thought that being competitive was fun growing up. I'm not sure why I think that (laughs) I guess, you know, social brainwashing didn't work on me for whatever strange reason, but it, I do understand that a lot of other women look at that and think, Oh, that, that's not for me. I'm just going to back off and let those guys do their thing because they would be exclusive to me. So I don't, I'm not even interested in it. Now, do you think that, uh, PAX East being in the Boston area now is starting to maybe help kind of mold a new view of as far as like, maybe I, I know that, I know that some of my more progressive friends (laughs) will say that PAX East itself isn't even that progressive. And I agree. It's, it, it, it could be better. But compared to other cons that I attend, and I attend several cons in this area, PAX has a really high percentage of women who are also playing and waiting in line for games that you wouldn't necessarily expect a woman to to play, waiting in line to play Gears of War and Mortal Kombat and what have you. They They are there, and they're very visible. And so even though PAX and Penny Arcade, by extension, hasn't always seemed super welcoming to everybody and has said some things in the past that aren't so great, um, PAX still manages to be more inclusive than most other cons. Uh, just you can just tell by looking and walking around. There, there are many women there. There are many people of all different ages and races and shapes and sizes there. You can just look at the con and say, "Oh wow, the gamer makeup is different than I thought it was, or maybe exactly the same as I thought it was." And now here they all are actually feeling welcome here. So I think it could be even even brighter than we think it is in terms of diversity but if anything that should make people feel more polite to each other online like if they go to this public meetup and they're like wow there are a lot of women here there are a lot of people of different races here who i didn't it's not just a bunch of white heterosexual young guys between 18 and 25 it's it's not who i thought it would be it then you'd think that maybe everybody would kind of calm down online if they you know see somebody who they think is a, a lady or what have you. <laughs> and, you know, the good thing about PAX 2 is their, uh, their cosplay enforcement that they've been pretty uh, well adhering to as far as making sure that booth babes don't go. I know. Uh, line. But well, we also they, have. They go back and forth on that, which is unfortunate. It's like either have the policy or don't. It seems well, it seems that they have the policy, then if pe- enough people complain, it will be happening because right, uh, right. last year they had the issue with the lollipop chainsaw girl who was yes. the legitimate model for a lollipop chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, but they had to have her change her clothing. The thing um, about but- that that's tricky is that I know that nobody, I didn't used to have a problem with booth babes at all. I just, 
I didn't really think it mattered that much. But then I heard some female developers complain about the fact that it makes people assume that they are booth babes and therefore that they shouldn't bother taking anything that those women say seriously because they think that they should just talk to somebody else who actually knows about the game. I, I've heard people complain about that. And that made me feel really upset because I just, it made me feel like, God, okay, well then we can't have booth babes at all because clearly it's making other women who actually work there feel like nobody's taking them seriously. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how to solve that problem without just being like, well, how about if we just don't have this here? Exactly. And I, I do know that the lollipop chainsaw model, I, I respect what she does. It's totally fine for her to be in other places like promoting the game. But within that context, when gamers are waiting in line to talk to developers about the game, I just think it's really confusing to have other people working at the booth who don't actually know anything about the game. And it sends a really mixed message about who's working there. And now recently there was another article in regards to uh, female cosplay and uh, females wearing uh, suggestive clothing and then a being upset that guys were taking pictures in your that I mean, we see that all the time at the cons around here, at the Anime Con and at the PAX yeah. East Con. We've seen people dress a little bit provocatively, uh, but of course there are plenty of uh, women and men online backlashing from both sides. Now, where do you kind of stand on that whole instance of women who dress in scantily clad cosplay and then get upset that guys are kind of oogling them and uh, taking photos and stuff like that? Well... I don't know. I <laughs> that question is almost too vague for me to answer. I I think that if you okay, <laughs> let me let me think about how the, how to start this answer. If the woman gets to decide who takes a picture of her, and I know that that just sucks. And if she's wearing something and you you're a guy and you really want to take a picture of her, and she doesn't want you to take a picture of her you don't get to. And that's just kind of how that works. I mean, if she's looking at you and she's saying, please don't take a picture of me, you can't do it. And I think that, unfortunately, the security at these kinds of events is abysmal. And that's something that I've wanted to write about in the past, although it's very hard to get security guards at cons to talk to me. But hopefully someday I'll be able to write an expose about this. But a lot of times security guards just kind of ignore this sort of thing. Like if a woman complains about something at a con just kind of ignored because it's too complicated to even know where to begin with this kind of thing. It, I, I, or at least so I assume security cards think it's just too complicated to, to enforce. And a lot of times like guys will take pictures on the sly and so on. Um, I mean, all I can really say is it's not okay. No matter what she's wearing, if you do anything that makes her uncomfortable, then you're in the wrong. And it, there, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that justifies anything. And yeah, I mean, I I do understand like, oh, she's wearing, you know, a Wonder Woman outfit and she's adorable. So shouldn't shouldn't everybody get to take a picture of her? Well, no, you know, she maybe just she likes Wonder Woman and maybe she doesn't really want you to go home and masturbate to her later. <laughs> I mean, I, I this is the other part of this is a lot of times female characters outfits are really tiny and that's just kind of how that is. And that's kind of crappy. And maybe women wouldn't have to worry about this as much if they got to cosplay as characters who weren't wearing tiny outfits. And 
who they also liked. Like maybe the women characters that they liked would be wearing clothes. And so then when they're a fan of a character, the cosplay that they end up in isn't really tiny because they're just wearing clothes. And I definitely think at Back <laughs> East you kind of see that a lot. Well, yeah. It's fortunate to see a lot of uh, empowered females dressing as not necessarily sexy outfits, but they're like game characters. They're dressing up in full costume. I mean, you've got the infamous Holly Conrad who dresses up as Commander Shepard. Yeah. Uh, and now makes a living out of it. Uh, and then I, I well, saw a obviously few girls. Commander Shepard's wearing plenty of clothes. She's a total badass. <laughs> and then you have the model for uh, one of the characters for Mass Effect 3 that was showing around that she was there with Bioware as well. Um, and then you had uh, a couple of women dressed in Gears of War uh, right. style clothing. And usually I see at least one Samus cosplayer. Not always a Zero suit. I saw one wearing a Vary suit. But it is very difficult to make the Vary suit. I, I mostly just think... Like a lot of times you see, you know, your lollipop chainsaws and your Lilith from Borderlands. I love Borderlands. Lilith isn't really wearing that much. She's wearing a very cleavage bearing top. And even, you know, Bioshock, Elizabeth is not really wearing that much on top. That kind of thing. I, I understand why developers do it because they believe that sex sells. I don't know that it does as well as they think it does. That's a separate argument. But it does mean that when women cosplay a character who they like, even if that character actually is really great and known for her personality, the costume ends up being pretty small. And by extension, the female character isn't really taken seriously as anything other than just a sexy lady. And then the cosplayer who's cosplaying her, even if she really likes the character, isn't really taken seriously as a person either because she's wearing this tiny outfit and so on and so forth. And it's just sort of like this weird symptom of a larger problem that exists in video games and also in a lot of other aspects of culture. But there you go. That's a whole can of worms. <laughs> now, so far, there's been three total PAX East. Uh, is there something that you've really liked about them and something that you've really disliked about them? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, something I really like about them. I really like the extent to which they've included musical acts. And I don't really see this happen that often at other gaming cons or even other nerd cons. But I like the way that PAX has just gone ahead and had really great chiptune artists in its tiny rooms and generally really great performances on the main stage. The video game orchestra is fantastic. And the Proto Men are wacky and fun to watch. And Jonathan Colton was there last year. I really like the way that they've included entertainment as part of that con's experience and put on a show in a way that I wish other cons would take notice of. They just come up with a fun thing to do at night that involves a little bit of social interaction and fun that isn't just standing in line waiting to play a game all day. It's sort of like a nice balance between different activities. The thing about PAX that I really wish they'd work on is panels. They often have lines, just lines, lines, lines for certain panels and people can't get in. And lots of times the panels are pretty good, but like not enough people can get into the really popular ones. And then other ones, there's so many extra seats. It just seems like they haven't gotten together which kinds of panels will be popular and which won't. And I don't really see that happen at other conventions as often as I do at PAX. And I'm not sure what's up with that, but a lot of times... For example, a lot of times panels about gender in video games or diversity in video games are extremely popular, but PAX hosts very few of these panels, 
And I'm not sure why that is, because it always seems like those panels are super popular. And also, even within panels, that whole question and answer thing. I don't know if you've <laughs> tried to attend a panel at PAX, but gosh, there are always a whole lot of people there asking questions that aren't relevant and don't make any sense. And the only good solution that I've ever seen to this was at a PAX panel two PAXs ago. Um, Ishiro Lambe is a game developer in Boston, and he was the moderator on this panel. He had everybody in the audience of several hundred people write down questions on index cards and give them to him during the panel. And as other people were answering questions, he would be going through each index card and only asking the questions that he thought were any good. And he wasn't paying attention to the answers. He was just sitting there reading questions. Oh, yes. I went to the... uh... Mass it was it was panel. the only panel. Hiroshiro's <laughs> panel was the only panel I've ever seen at a PAX where I thought, wow, these questions are great and I'm not bored and this panel's actually going really well. I just don't know why they don't do that every single time. Definitely. I mean, I went to the Mass Effect 3 panel um, and it was packed, obviously, because people wanted to hear what they were going to do about the ending controversy mm-hmm. and all that. And people got so mad when the last question asked was about, um, I believe, uh quality assurance tools that they used people like started losing their minds that that was the last question because certain questions hadn't been asked about the game itself Mm. Uh, but yeah i mean the thing that people also don't realize when their questions aren't answered at the panels most of these developers are also on the floor they have their rooms like well, also, like, there were so many forum posts about that that were responded to by the developers online. I mean, it's people are so much more accessible nowadays than they used to be pre-internet. I mean, you can just ask a developer something. You can just tweet at them, and hopefully they'll respond if you are polite. <laughs> or you can write a forum post and just write a whole essay to them about what you think, and they'll probably read it if it's well-written and you've thought about it. I mean, I don't want to throw around the word entitled because I actually don't think that most people are entitled. I think it's mostly that people don't really understand how much attention is actually being paid to them. And I I wish people would be grateful for that because I do a lot of the developers that I know really do pay attention. And, you know, I I think that it's pretty great. (laughs) I think we're doing all right. right. So I, I, a panel at a con is no longer the only place where you can talk to a developer. Definitely not. Okay, now we're going to hit the question round. Oh, sweet. (laughs) So we're going to start with, what's your favorite video game at the moment? Okay. Um, I I want to cheat on all of these questions and put more (laughs) than one thing. So (laughs) hopefully I won't get in trouble for doing that. Um, No, that's fine. I very recently, this past week, published an article about a game called They Bleed Pixels, which is a little indie game that came out about a month ago, and I love it. And it's very similar to Super Meat Boy. People like Super Meat Boy. But They Bleed Pixels is about a little girl who lives in the Victorian era, and it's sort of um, a horror game platformer. It's kind of spooky, and you are a little girl who grows claws and stabs monsters. And it's just amazing. It's <laughs> It's got a fun visual aesthetic, and it's really, really hard. But gosh, I love it. And also, I wrote an article about it, so people can Google that and find it. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say is just that I finally played Rayman Origins yesterday for like eight straight hours. It came out a year ago. It's really old. But oh my goodness, it's so good. <laughs> And I wish I had played it before now. But yeah, so that's a contemporary game and then a really old game that I should have played already. <laughs> now, what platform are you playing these on? 
Oh, Beyblade Pixels is only out for PC right now. Rayman Origins I was playing on the Wii. I don't think it's out for anything else besides the Wii, but I could be totally wrong. Maybe it's uh, out it's for like, everything. It's out. I believe it's out for everything. Um, Sweet. And I believe the it's being re-released for the Wii U. Oh, uh, well, we'll get to the Wii U in a second. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's your favorite video game character of all time? Okay, I gotta go with Samus. Um, <laughs> my Twitter name is Samus Clone, so I guess that isn't a surprise. But I also really like the female characters in Gears of War 3, who I've also written about several times. And I have a soft spot for Marcus and Dom, because in my head, they're totally in a relationship together. <laughs> but yeah, any Gears of War <laughs> that Gears you of can't War go wrong with main character who's also voiced by the same guy who does the voice of Bender. I know! I know! He's really great. <laughs> uh, if you could turn one video game character into the opposite gender, who would it be and why? I think about this all the time. Is this why you asked me this? Because I'm always talking about this. I just, I feel like any way, like, if you've got a video game and you're like, boy, my video game's boring, just flip the genders around and it'll suddenly become so interesting. Or any story. Well, because... <laughs> the no reason point. why I bring it up is because another, um, at least kind of a video game host, but it's uh, the movie Bob, or a game overthinker, he actually brought up the something in his recent Q&A show where he brought up flipping the gender for the Legend of Zelda games. Yeah, because was somebody it? had done that. Did you read about that? There was uh, a no, programmer who was also a dad i think or a mom gonna go with dad though i I, i'm pretty sure um who did it for his daughter because he wanted her to pretend that link was a girl so he like created a mod for legend of zelda such that all of the genders were switched throughout the entire game pretty cool so he actually did it (laughs) but anyway what game character would you do it with um i i would Okay, so this is just my first pick because I would do this with like every character if I could because I just think it's always really cool and interesting. Um, but I love the game Borderlands. I just think it would be really cool if Brick, who is the huge muscle man in that game, were a lady. Like just a huge muscle lady. Because you so rarely see a huge muscle lady. And also because I love Brick and I always play as Brick. And I'm replaying Borderlands. Not Borderlands 2, but Borderlands. Um, and I also think it w- that it would be cool to see a game th- about female soldiers, like a Call of Duty game or a Gears of War game or any other kind of like on the rails type shooter where a woman is the main character. But also within the scope of the game, she probably would be a minority because in, in real life that's the case. And I, I think that a thoughtful game about that experience could be a lot more interesting than this sort of repetitive, oh, look, some more guys shooting kinds of games that we see a lot i i just think it could be interesting to see some other kinds of stories being told about the army and what's the uh next title that you're really looking forward to playing okay so a lot of stuff just came out and (laughs) i have some catching up to do there um and the next few releases that are a big deal aren't for a little while but i think i'm gonna go with dead space 3 Dead Space 2 was so terrifying, I could barely make it through it. I had to review it, so I had to do it, but oh my goodness. Dead Space 3, everybody is complaining that it's not going to be scary enough because it's cooperative. You can play local co-op, so I can play with a friend if I want to, and I will. (laughs) But I am kind of relieved if it might be even a little bit less scary, because if I have to review it and 
I may, or if I just want to play it at all, at least now it'll be a little more tolerable because I'll be in there with a friend. I do actually agree with people who say that co-op play makes games less scary, but for me that's kind of a relief because I am apparently scared of everything. And I'm also looking forward to Far Cry 3 and Tomb Raider. Those are my other two (laughs) tacked on to this question. Um, Yeah, I definitely looked into uh, that game a few times, but it just... It freaked me out a little too much, and I just couldn't get into it. Oh, it's so scary. I, I you know, people are going to tell you that it's not scary. I feel like every single horror game that ever comes out, people are like, well, it's not scary. And I just want to tell those people to shut up. Because you know what? You've been desensitized. And for the rest of us humans, it's still really scary. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe I was reading something on the developer mentioning about um, Dead Space 3, where there's a portion in the beginning beginning where you finally get to it they didn't reveal at what point it starts happening but there's about 25 minutes of just sounds to make you think something's going to happen but nothing does and they just ran (laughs) they ran a few people through it and they all constantly were getting freaked out for the 25 minutes and then they made it relaxed and then something happens where they all like every single one of them freaked out so oh man yeah they are good at stuff i don't know why people think those games aren't scary i just find them Ugh, I can barely make it. I can't even play Silent Hill at all, so just, I'm useless when it comes to that. And then Resident Evil is like, I can barely do, but, yeah. (laughs) And now the Wii U, uh, is that something you can't wait to get, or is that something you're going to completely pass on? Well, I'm going to get it either way, because it's the job, but I, I have mixed feelings about it. The big selling point to me is that You can play a game on that little tablet while somebody else watches TV, which if anybody's ever had a roommate before and only one TV, then, you know, it it would be nice to have that. (laughs) But I I feel like the the use of the tablet and the TV, I'm not yet convinced that it's going to be awesome. And maybe that's blasphemous to say. I'm just not I'm not sold on it yet. So I'm interested to see how it goes. But. You know, if I didn't have to get it for my job, I'd probably wait, which is interesting because when the Wii came out, I was totally one of those people waiting for it at midnight and I was so excited and I just played it and played it and played it and played it. And I even got that terrible Katana game, Red Steel, that ended up being the worst. And I got like all kinds of release day games for it, most of which were terrible. But, oh, I loved it so much. And um, that was before I even was a games journalist. I was just, you know, I really wanted it. And um, it was so fun. But... I do feel like my Wii's been collecting dust for a little while. I haven't really had any awesome stuff on it. Although, finally, Rayman. That's true. I did just play Rayman. But but that came out a year ago. I, I'm i just... I'm a little worried about the Wii, I guess. I I hope it goes okay for them, because I do... I do really love Zelda. I'd like to see something a little better than Skyward Sword. Um, I I obviously am a huge Metroid fan. I, I don't know. I... I really want it to be a success, but I always want everything to be a success. I always want to play a game that's great. I never want anything to fail. (laughs) The hard thing of their current selling point, I think, is that they lack any real powerful release titles beyond the Super Mario Bros. Wii U game. I know. Um, And I think that people will most likely be picking it up once they have a Metroid and Legend of Zelda game actually Oh, heck yeah. If they release a Metroid, I'm there. But the problem also is that people are confused of why they would offer a price point of $350 for, like, an excellent system and $50 less. You only get about three gigs of uh, memory so you can save all those downloads. The only thing that I do approve of, the fact that they're the first uh, next-gen console to allow you to transfer all of your um, 
downloads from your Wii over to the Wii U. So that's a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. That is a big deal. Uh, But I think right now their price point and their lack of games is probably why there isn't... I'm guessing there may not be a major push, but they're also doing the release around the holidays. Uh, So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I I know some people are kind of excited about Zombie U. Um, I it could be good. I'm Mario isn't really enough for me. I mean, again, if I weren't a journalist, I'm imagining. Um, I don't think that would be enough, which is funny because I played the original Mario, the the Wii one, a bazillion times, and obviously I'm playing Rayman, which is basically Mario. <laughs> I played Donkey Kong too, which is like the same idea as all of those games. I do like those games. Um, but that's not like enough for me. Those are like party games. I'd, I'd like to see a little more serious of a game like a Zelda or a Metroid before I would want to invest in that. I just feel like Mario's not enough. I, I wish that they had like an opening day Metroid title or something like that, but I, I guess they don't. <laughs> Maybe yeah, soon they will feel the same as you as far as like my Wii's been collecting dust mainly because I mean well maybe you should get Rayman Origins I don't know (laughs) all the major titles are on the 360 so I really don't need to switch over right now and right there with you just all on the 360 right now (laughs) and I'm curious to see how those titles will switch over to the Wii U is whether they'll really be playable um if the yeah, I heard the that they're releasing Mass Effect 3 on the Wii U. I yep. That baffles me. Like, are they're, they also releasing... I should know this. Are they also releasing Mass Effect 1 and 2 on there? They're how are releasing people the gonna... trilogy on Wii U. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Well, that's all right then. Well, you they're know... Doing a lot, that's the thing, too, is a lot of games are being re-released for the Wii U, um, which irks some people that have played them on 360 or PS3 already. Yeah. And they're not coming out... I believe they're, most of them will not come out at, like discounted price points because they were technically already released. Um, but I'm also curious how they will play with the uh, Wii U's gamepad or the Wiimotes. I know that they've also added something like a gamepad controller that you can buy separately, which I think yeah, is kind of I really gimmicky. I sort of wonder, though, how a shooter will play on the Wii U. Like, right. if you're playing Mass Effect as the soldier class, or like if you're playing any kind of shooter, like a Metroid Prime sort of a shooter, um, I... I don't know how that will feel with the tablet thing. I just, I don't know yet, and I'd like to play it and find out. So <laughs> I guess I guess I'll get back to the internet about my thoughts on that. But for now, I'm, I'm kind of wary, and I'm a little concerned. <laughs> but I hope, I hope everything turns out okay. <laughs> and finally, you set the scene. If you could behead any video game character, who would it be, and what would your weapon of choice be, and why? Okay. Um, I thought about this a lot. I originally I was gonna say Ridley for Metroid because it seems apropos, but I think instead of that, I'm gonna go with Wesker of Resident Evil because I really like you kill him at the end of Resident Evil Five. Spoilers, I guess, but if people don't know that by now, come on. Um, but he's not really dead. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. And Resident Evil Six, there's like some Wesker stuff. He's not really in the game. Um. I just feel like he won't go away and I kind of wish Resident Evil would do something totally different and they just keep revisiting old plot points. And I think it's, they've gotten away from their original themes of like, you know, big corporations and big pseudoscience. And it just, it would be cool to see some really different kinds of villains and they just keep going back to Wesker stuff. So I think Wesker's got to die. He's got to die in a big way. I don't know what that would be. Maybe I would dismember him and, burn all the pieces just to make sure he was really gone scatter the ashes 
I don't know. Gonna go with dismembering and burning. Maybe he's got clones? I don't know. I just want to see Resident Evil go somewhere else. Well, what weapon would you use? Um, for the dismembering? I don't know. Uh, how about a chainsaw? I, hmm, yeah, okay. Or a katana. (laughs) Really big sword of some kind. Buster sword? I'm just gonna be Cloud in this scenario. (laughs) Okay. And we're just gonna throw in one extra question. So if you could okay, cool. any game from the past to today's current consoles, what would it be? Reboot one? Okay, wait. Like now, how much reboot, can I? Reboot. How much can I change it? What do you like? I can just, just do whatever much I want. You want. So, like, if you want to do like River City Ransom, upgrade that. You just want to upgrade graphics. You want to change the storyline. Hmm. How old? Okay, this is a tough question. <laughs> Uh, I kind of want to say Super Metroid, but I also feel like it's so perfect that I almost don't want to reboot it. Um, I, I guess, I guess I would try to, but I wouldn't change that much. I would, I feel like Super Metroid, it would be cool to see a similar version of it with better graphics and, but still 2D. I, and, but the same idea. And I feel like that game, that idea of exploring and just seeming to be happening upon items. It's so great in that game, the way that they set it up so that it feels like you're finding stuff on your own, but you're really not. It's so cleverly done that I feel like modern games could learn from that. So a modern version of that, just to remind everybody how, how wonderful that was could be great. Um, I also think that Zelda might do well to get back to basics too. And perhaps, perhaps a remake of an original Zelda game could be interesting. Although they will never do that because they will just keep remaking Zelda games with a new timeline and link in a new place. But it, it could be cool to, to see a remake of a Zelda game too, I think. Great. Uh, now, if people want to find you online, how can they do so? Okay, well, they can follow me on Twitter at Samus Clone, and um, they can also Google me and find all my articles at The Phoenix. And hopefully I'll be writing something there soon. I did just write about They Bleed Pixels. Hopefully I'll put something up next week. I don't know what about. Who knows? <laughs> People can find it. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. No problem. It was fun. Thanks for having me. And thank you very much for joining us, Manny. Well... If you'd like to follow more about Maddie Myers, on Twitter you can follow her at Samus Clone. Again, that's S-A-M-U-S-C-O-C-L-O-N-E. Up next, here we are with our review of Assassin's Creed 3. Following a large build-up to its release, Assassin's Creed 3 started off with some excellent storylines, cutscenes, and then eventually became a where-the-heck-is-this-all-going type of game. While the new moves, scenery, weapons, and characters all feel new in the first few days of gameplay, the main plot becomes very bland and lacks creating an emotional attachment to the game's main character. Not only that, but you constantly have to go back and forth from the past with the Assassin's time to the present time, which appears to be leading up to Doomsday on December 21st, 2012. The game takes a while to actually get you to the main assassin character of Connor, a Native American whose tribe is being threatened by men he believes are trying to destroy his people. What seemed at first as a strong lead character quickly appears to be a naive young man following the wrong path of what he believes is the right path. You soon lose an emotional attachment to Connor when it appears he's pushing forward down that path. Oh, don't forget that you're also going to have to do stuff in the present time. The 
alternations between the assassin's time and the present time constantly throws the game off the path, triggering you to do tedious stealth missions with the occasional fighting to continue back along the assassin's story. With all of the hype leading up to the game's release, this player can say that the new weapons and moves of Connor are not even close to the best part of the game. What is the best part? The naval missions. The naval battles you will encounter may be some of the best on-the-seas battles in gaming history. The controls are not always easy, but blasting away an enemy ship was far more satisfying to me than using the new rope dart weapon during the land missions. Building up your vessel is the key to destroying your enemies on the seas, which does take some time, but it makes it all worth it in the end. We're actually hoping the next Assassin's Creed game contains more naval battles. The downside of this installment of the Assassin's Creed franchise is it does not appear to be the title you can pick up and fully understand the storyline without playing the previous titles. While the present time story, as we noted, clearly leads towards stopping Armageddon from happening, the final ending will leave players new to the franchise confused as well as lead us to believe this is not the final installment of the Assassin's Creed series. Overall, what Assassin's Creed 3 lacks in story, it makes up with gameplay as battling multiple redcoats, along with blowing holes in enemy ships, can keep you popping this game back into your system again and again. We can only hope for a full-fledged Assassin's game based strictly upon those naval missions. Assassin's Creed 3 is currently available for all consoles, and a special edition is available on the PlayStation Vita. Assassin's Creed 3 gets four heads of our enemies out of five. And that will do it for this episode of the Throne of Games podcast. We'd once again like to thank our special guest, Maddie Myers. You can follow us along at Throne of Games on Twitter. That's Throne underscore of underscore games on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for more episodes of the Throne of Games podcast.